Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist. And I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Now today I'm talking to Ryan Althaus from Santa Cruz, California. Ryan is a 39-year-old eating disorder survivor on his own recovery journey. He runs a non-profit program, an inclusivity project based around uniting diverse groups with disabilities through art and recreation. And you can check this out at www.sweatycheap.com. Ryan has a diagnosis of autism and is passionate about educating and raising awareness of eating disorder concerns that can go alongside this. He is an ex-professional marathon runner and semi-professional Ironman triathlete. Ryan is also an ordained minister of the National Presbyterian Church USA in charge of mental health awareness throughout the SF Bay region. And if this wasn't enough, he is additionally a certified yoga instructor and certified psychiatric chaplain. Ryan also hosts a bi-weekly radio show on mental health called The Kooky Side of Crazy. And he has also authored several children's books and is soon to be publishing a new book out on the 8th of February called From Emaciated to Emancipated, talking all about his eating disorder recovery journey. Ryan has struggled with eating disorders and exercise addiction since childhood. Then having health issues prior to COVID, this sent him into an intense eating disorder relapse. He has also had a relatively recent diagnosis of autism, which has helped to shed light and give him more understanding into some aspects about his relationship with food and exercise. In the episode today, we're going to hear all about Ryan's eating disorder recovery journey with the ups and downs of this, whilst exploring his recent relapse and journey out of this. We'll also be going to do a deep dive into understanding Ryan's perspective of living with autism and an eating disorder, this being an area that still needs far greater understanding and insight. Let's get to the conversation. Hi, Ryan, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, good evening, good morning, well, good day. (laughs) So, Ryan, you're saying it's about 10.30 there for you at the moment. So where are you based? Can you tell all the listeners? Yeah, definitely. So Santa Cruz, California, just south of San Francisco. And yeah, the fog's just peeling off now. So everybody's waking up. Ah, lovely. And what sort of weather are you having over there at the moment? Yeah, Santa Cruz is kind of the same weather every day. So we wake up to a nice cool foggy morning and then, you know, about noontime, it's 75 and sunny and fog rolls in again in the evening and we sleep well. Mm, sure. No, it sounds great. It's a hard kind of... life. Yeah. <laughs> so, Ryan, could I get you firstly, please, to introduce yourself to the listeners? Definitely. So I am one of the more non-traditional ministers of the world. So I'm 39 years old, and I'm a Presbyterian minister who works in a Unitarian Universalist church and a sailboat captain on the side. And yeah, it's kind of a second life. I came from a life as a professional marathon runner for almost a decade and jumped into the Ironman triathlon circuit and through the whole time, yeah, struggled with eating disorder, exercise addiction since really since the age of seven. 
and yeah, just been recreating life ever since after a pretty rough relapse in my mid thirties. Mm, sure. Yeah, well, it sounds like, could you say a little bit more as well about your ministerial work? Because it sounds quite interesting. Yeah, could you just tell us a bit more? Because I'm sure many of the listeners might not understand kind of exactly what you do or your sort of take on things. Yeah. So my role with the National Presbyterian Church is the director of inclusivity. So I work with LGBTQ equality, homelessness and hunger which is kind of ironic given my anorexia. And then, yeah, I'm a licensed psych chaplain, which kind of spurred some of my more recent work in writing. I kind of took this dive from psych chaplain to psych patient and had to deal with this role reversal and the humility that, that came out of it. But yeah, the ministry part of my life is always, well, spirituality as a whole is pretty high on the list of priorities. But yeah, gosh. Mm. The big question. Journey, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, big question. So, yeah, no, sure. Thank you but for sharing. I also function as a, yeah, definitely. I was going to say I also function as a chaplain and manager of a 14 person sobriety home. So dealing with some different disorders and addictions and so forth, but they all seem to interrelate and faith seems to be a common tie throughout. Mm. Yeah, well, it sounds like really interesting work that you're doing. And I am sure that your faith is an important sort of part of your journey and healing as well from the eating disorder. Is that right? Yeah, it definitely has been. And that includes the doubt. I always joke with people that I wake up atheist three days a week, but try not to do it on Sunday mornings because that feels kind of hypocritical. But yeah, no, faith is a big part of it. And recently, I've yeah just published some articles around kind of the ancient religious roots of eating disorders, which has been fascinating kind of journey for me in my nerdy educational side of my being, just looking at these ancient aesthetic practices and how fasting and food ritual have been a part of all the religious traditions from, gosh, millennia ago. So yeah, really interesting stuff. Mm, yeah, they're really interesting there. And I guess like, when you sort of died into some of this, the historical aspects, would you say that some people sort of back in the day would have actually suffered with an eating disorder, even though it may have not been labeled or interpreted in that way? Very much so. There's a term called mirabilis, and it means holy anorexia. So what they're looking at is a lot of these ancient mystics, martyrs, and so forth, they practice these self-deprecating kind of rituals and whatnot, because they felt that a forced piety, a forced self-punishment and deprivation was what brought them closer to God. So, I mean, starting way back with even Jesus's fast in the desert, this idea of depravity as a way of alleviating kind of an inner guilt. And I think a lot of people with eating disorders, one of the roots of it is this inner feeling of unworthiness and guilt. So anything we can do to kind of almost make ourselves poor to take away that is huge. And then as they're moved kind of through time, a couple of these saints, like St. Clarissa was one, Julian of Norwich. Clarissa actually starved herself to death, but she was praised for it in the church. So yeah, really fascinating. Yeah, gosh, it's so fascinating, isn't it? How even like back in the day, how it was almost seen as something almost 
to be admired or a sign of perhaps yes. morality and purity. And, you know, I think that's very much the seduction of anorexia to this day, isn't it, actually? You know, and why it's perhaps very hard to let go of in a way, because of, you can feel like you're doing something really good and worthy and worthwhile. Exactly. And it triggers a physical feeling, too. There's a certain euphoria that comes through that starvation. A lot of kind of these religious figures that we look up and aspire to had their religious experience after a prolonged fasting period or a period of exertion. They have this euphoria that comes from it. And yeah, unfortunately, the means of going about that euphoria instead of what that divine connection is symbolizing and we've stuck it. Yeah. So now we worship the fast instead of worship where the fast takes us. Mm, yeah. And it's so interesting. So Ryan, I'm just going to change the tack a minute. And I know you have sort of fairly recently also been diagnosed with autism and you've sort of, you know, that's been really quite a revelation maybe in terms of understanding your eating disorder in a, a different perspective and joining lots of dots and things. So I guess for you, like going back as a sort of, you know, a young boy growing up, what was your relationship with food like? Because you said that perhaps from the age of seven, maybe there were some sort of eating disorder behaviours there, but was it sort of initially more around sort of sensory things and things more linked to the autism or was it about other things? Perhaps can you tell us a bit more? Yeah, so the autism thing, that's been an interesting fork in the road. Oh, I shouldn't say fork in the road. It's been an interesting divergence. Gosh, since birth, I was goofy when it came to food. We're going to use the word kooky. I've got a radio show called The Kooky Side of Crazy and a lot of my work is kind of taking the crazy and reclaiming our inner kooky, reclaiming that kind of that fun side. So yeah, as a little kid, I would obsess over certain foods with certain textures, mix food by texture and temperature, and just always had a certain obsession, which is something you see in a lot of autistic individuals. Just we focus on certain aspects of life that many wouldn't. So yeah, it was just kind of, once again, just kind of kooky behaviors. And then at age seven, my dad got diagnosed with terminal colon cancer. And it kind of threw my life for a little bit of a whirlwind and really started to focus in on claiming control of my emotions via food and exercise. So even as a seven-year-old, I would constantly just yeah, I would run outside and do laps around the house when I got anxious or had a little trampoline. I would bounce on the trampoline until, until I could barely feel my legs anymore because that was a way that, in fact, it was almost the only way that I knew of to alleviate that anxiety and take back control of the world. A death of a parent is kind of one of those things where it just, it shakes you enough that, yeah, you have to seek something. So that went on for a while. I had all sorts of once again, kooky habits, you know, I would line up my Skittles according to color and eat one every couple minutes while watching the same TV program or just little rituals. And that's actually one of the most important words when it comes to autism. So they had led kind of to believe that I had OCD as a kid. And those two are very related, OCD and autism. But the difference between a compulsion and a ritual is really important in that. Whereas a compulsion is something that actually causes anxiety. It's something you fight. 
but you can't mm-hmm. control. Like you have to do it, but doing it actually increases that inner angst versus an autistic ritual is something that alleviates anxiety. It's a meaningful activity. Like when you, a ritual around food and I still have many and it's like the cooking process and the tasting process. There's an element of mindfulness in a ritual, whereas in a compulsion, it's kind of that opposite there. So yeah, so that lingered on for a while. And it was right in high school when I started my running career that all of a sudden those food rituals turned into restriction. And that was a downhill slope. Yeah, wound up inpatient in a hospital when I was 18 at my first stent. And that's when they really laid into the obsessive compulsive. Unfortunately, with obsessive compulsive disorder, the trick is exposure therapy. And there's just about nothing that causes more trauma to an autistic individual than exposure therapy. Mm. So that didn't go too well. But yeah, ended up forming rituals around like my meals in a really healthy way coming out of the hospital. And yeah, that lasted almost two decades. Whereas... Mm. Yeah, those rituals actually, they enhanced my life as well as made sure I was getting my nutrition. They were good. And once again, I was kooky throughout. My friends thought I was hilarious, but there wasn't that layer of secrecy. I was really open with people. They just, yeah, people just thought I was a little bit odd, which I am. Mm. And, and Brian, would you mind sort of sharing some of the rituals that were really perhaps soothing and helpful and, you know, that were really important to you? Yeah, definitely. So I always add in my kind of my faith into it. Food has become a time when I really focus on, like, I always have a devotional with each meal. I kind of sit with each and I do a gratitude practice, whereas just kind of sitting with each element of the food, just focus on yeah, just being gracious for where it is, what it tastes like. So that's always big. And then certain times of my day, as well as the ritual of like, there's my first meal, my breakfast and my dinner are meals that I eat alone. And that's actually really important for me. Eating publicly is something I do try to challenge myself on. But that ritualistic practice of just being alone with it for a couple of those meals a day allows me to eat in a way of yeah, a relaxed and appreciative state. Yeah, and little mm. things like the grinding of coffee and just all those little nuances that most people just kind of ignore and pass over have really shaped it. And I think the biggest thing about it is they've held me to it is like because I look forward to that breakfast and dinner because of the rituals. So those are meals that like, yeah, I won't skip. They're an important part of my diet. They're an important part of my life. And they keep me grounded. Hmm. Sure. It sounds, thank you for sharing that. Because I think it sounds like there's perhaps a sort of element of, you know, sort of ceremony, slowing down, being very present, being very mindful. You know, it sounds actually, <laughs> there's some real benefits for you, I think, aren't there, of having those rituals and taking that time. And I'm sure actually a lot of us listening <laughs> could benefit from doing a bit more of that in some respects. It is. And in some respect, and that's the thing, too, is like, yeah, we have to make sure once again, they're not compulsive behaviors and they're not. Yeah. So I think what it comes down to is just recognizing the intention behind it. Yeah, no, sure. And I'm guessing that you have had other things or rituals that have not been so helpful or, you know, and things that you've had to perhaps sort of challenge or are more connected to the eating disorder 
rather than sort of a self-care practice? Yeah, and I think the biggest one is recognizing the, because when I really start slipping up is when I feel like I have to earn the ritual. And that's been a kind of a story through my life of instead of just embracing like, oh man, I'm really going to, I'm going to spend some time cooking my dinner and being grateful for this component of it. But yeah, when I get in my weaker moments, it's okay. I've got to restrict through the day in order to make that dinner that special. And I've got to, so when we take that ritual to that next level of it becomes so important in our life that we have to earn it. We have to cut out other aspects of our life in order to, in order to do it. If my dinner ritual all of a sudden takes me away from going to a concert with some friends or so recognizing those rituals are something that add to life. And as soon as they start taking away from it, then yeah, definitely have to kind of sit with myself and ask some difficult questions. Mm. And this whole sort of thing about having to earn food and feeling undeserving what sense do you make of that for yourself personally, sort of from a psychological perspective? Like, do you link it back to the trauma of, you know, losing a parent at a really young age? Or, you know, I'm sure it's very I do. complex. Yeah, sure. I do. Yeah, I think one of the things of it is when, yeah, losing a parent and I lost some grandparents in that same year, I suddenly realized that human relationship wasn't something I could depend on. And I hate to make that statement because relationship is so vital to our well-being. But the reality is just that. Like human relationship is an unknown. So for me, I had these bookends in my day. I've always had my breakfast and my dinner are like these things or food in general are things that I know won't let me down. I know that food will be there and I have an overvaluation of it, which is really unhealthy in a lot of ways. So throughout my day, as I look at other elements that I don't have control of, it makes me cling that much stronger to those two elements of my day that I do have control of, that food and that exercise. So, yeah. Sure. So having the control of the food and the exercise, you know, it sounds like it makes you feel safe. Like you're almost saying like there's kind of bookends to the day. It's containing safe. You know it predictable mm -hmm. I guess isn't it yeah exactly exactly yeah and autistic individuals in general are very routine in their day I function on the same kind of schedule daily and that's really important in a lot of ways because well when it's done in a healthy sense yeah it kind of makes sure that you hit all those vital elements and make sure you follow that meal plan and make sure but it also kind of allows you to sit back and be present you're not constantly thinking I have a lot of well, and it's another nature of the autistic spectrum disorder is a difficulty making decisions. Mm -hmm. So if I'm hit with a decision of, yeah, what am I going to do with so-and-so? Yeah, I find a lot of my anxiety comes from the element of choice. It's what we call existential anxiety in the philosophical world. Mm -hmm. Sure. So if you've got that control and predictability around your eating in a way, it's like a little bit of a life raft, isn't it? It's kind of something that is safe and solid and predictable. Exactly. And, yeah. And, and like you're saying, in a way, I think as long as it's like having kind of structure and routine and perhaps reducing the amount of decisions that you have to make throughout the day, it sounds for you, actually, that can be really, really helpful. 
but like you said again earlier it's just recognizing if it becomes perhaps too rigid like you can't go to a concert with your friends or mm -hmm. it's yeah it's being able to have that element of flexibility isn't it around the edges I guess yeah I've worked with nutritionists in the past and they're one of them was really good in because I do I find myself eating the same foods and so forth throughout the day and it's actually been really good for me living on site and being a manager of a sobriety home because I've started to realize like all these individuals in recovery, like I'm not quite as weird as I thought I was. Like they all, pretty much everybody at the house eats the same kind of thing for the same meals every day. And, but yeah, my nutritionist is really good and she's challenged me to like, I'm allowed to eat the same for breakfast and dinner, but I have to insert a wild card lunch. And I have to have a wild card element in each of those meals. And it can be something really simple and small, or it can be something crazy challenging. But it's just that really what it is, is the continual statement to myself that I can challenge these routines is the essential part. It's like you never want to let that guard down and allow your routine to take full control. You have to just keep reminding yourself whether it's a tiny little thing or something extravagant that you really do have control to make a choice, whether you make that or not. Mm, yeah, I know that sounds really helpful. So Ryan, for you, has the eating disorder or exercise addiction, has it ever been about weight and shape and body image or not? Not as much. I would lie to say that it hasn't completely. I do have a body dysmorphia time to time. For me, it's almost always about feeling. I don't like the way my body feels at a heavier weight all the time. I like the clothing rubs in a certain way. And that's part of the autistic nature of things. But for me, especially the exercise has always been, it goes back to that spirituality component that I was talking about earlier. There's a certain euphoria that comes from restriction and exertion. And I've become kind of addicted to that. I look in the mirror and a lot of times I actually think I'm too skinny. But that process of kind of, yeah, nurturing myself and resting and gaining that weight and getting to a healthy weight is scary because it's change and it's a feeling that I'm uncomfortable with. So, yeah, I mean, there's many times where I, yeah, I wish I could be at my goal weight, but the thought of getting there is just too scary too intimidating and that's one of the great parts about treatment i always <laughs> the book i just published i coined the phrase residential retreat and it's just recognizing that it's not fun to try to do it alone but in the right setting yeah that gaining process can be enjoyable recovery can be enjoyable if we approach it as such but to do it alone isn't always easy so I just want to mention to you my bite-sized eating disorder therapy membership, which is now live. So if you're a fan of this podcast, the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast, then this is a membership where you can access additional resources, information, content, audio, and video to support you on your healing journey. So if you enjoy the podcast, it will be very much along similar themes, okay? A lot of it will be personal content from me, really imparting my skills and tips and strategies from the therapy room and to really help you gain a psychological understanding about your eating disorder. So 
So I'm going to be providing lots of psychological insights, understanding skills and tips from the therapy room, really helping you to be empowered along your journey. Now, it's not a substitute for professional therapy. However, I really hope it will uplift, inspire and educate you whilst you're on your healing journey. So if you're interested in finding out more, do go to the show notes and the link is there and it will take you through. Only £5 a month and it is brilliant value to really get some great tools while you're maybe on a waiting list or if you're wanting to kind of refresh some therapy skills or just really up-level your recovery journey. That's so helpful, I think, just to hear you explain a bit more about that because of, I think, many people listening as well, and I think some of my own clients who have talked about this side of things, you know, explaining about how the feeling, like the feeling or the change is the difficult thing, really. It's actually... Is a bit about body image, but it's not so much about body image, is it? It's more about the kind of letting go and dealing with perhaps difficult feelings or the change in feelings that you will evoke, I guess, if you start to eat more and rest more. And yeah, that can be very challenging. Exactly. And it's just looking at what do you do with rest? Once again, it goes back to that existential crisis of making choice. Well, if I'm not Mm. going through my daily daily ritual and I'm doing this rest thing, what do I do with the extra energy? So yeah, pinned with these decisions Mm. to make versus all of a sudden you jump in an inpatient or an IOP program and you have that day laid out for you. So Mm. yeah, you might have excess energy, but you've got an art project and you've got a support group and you've got like these structured things that just fit naturally in your day. And you can do that alone. You can create that schedule for yourself. It's a little bit more difficult. Like I said, it's it's nicer to go on the retreat, but yeah, it's definitely doable. It's just filling those gaps of unknowns and making it so you don't have to make those decisions. I like Steve Jobs was always famous. They say he had two suits because he knew he had a certain amount of creative energy in his day and he didn't want to waste it on what to wear. And I think that's very true with an eating disorder. And that's one of the reasons that a food plan works so well. It's like we have a certain amount of energy and recovery. And it's not great to expend all that energy trying to think of what type of bread that you need to eat in the morning. It's much more kind of useful to to expend that on the therapeutic elements of your day. Mm. The relationships and the activities that actually add purpose to life. Yeah. So it sounds like perhaps for you, you know, in your recovery, I'm sure as well for, you know, other people that have struggled with anorexia or anorexia and autism as well, but having that food plan structure to minimize the decision making, sort of simplifying that aspect, that's one thing that's been really helpful. So what other things as well would you say have been particularly helpful for you in recovery and particularly perhaps addressing the autistic side of things as well because I think in a lot of more sort of traditional treatments where it's very weight shape focused sometimes that is not very helpful is that right yeah no most definitely yeah and anytime you focus on weight shape etc it's kind of yeah, it comes about numbers it comes about well and I think what you do in that is you put a certain weight a certain number a certain something on a pedestal whereas I think For me, the biggest thing has been looking at 
what gives me a sense of purpose in my life. It was interesting when I was first inpatient way back when I was 18. And at that time, I was not religious at all. I had an inclination towards spirituality, but really no motivation for religion. But I remember meeting with the chaplain twice a week, and I just thought it was so great. She was an interfaith chaplain. And I wrote about this in the book again. It's Well, I asked her, what's the purpose of life? And I said it kind of jokingly. But her response was incredibly enlightening. It, she just simply looked at me and she goes, the purpose in life is finding a purpose in living. And I think that's something that we forget in recovery a lot of times. We try to focus on a set goal, a set weight, we, this word recovered. But for me, it's been looking at what is my purpose in living outside of the eating disorder? What am I striving for? And one of the things that has helped me do it is actually working with special needs populations. And I found, yeah, kind of throughout the years, I've dabbled in different special needs organizations. And working with that kind of population offers you this non-judgmental companionship that the world really doesn't offer. For me, like I said, relationship and depending on other people, you know, given the deaths in my early ages has been really difficult for me. But yeah, when you're able to kind of step back and I work with a couple of individuals, one of them is great. He's got cerebral palsy and non-vocal just, but absolutely loves on you. So you always get a big hug, always this excited look, just so much welcoming. But to serve those populations is the sense of purpose. And it also shows you like these individuals are so present in the moment, whereas my mind is going 10 different directions of what am I going to eat for lunch? What am I going to, yeah, how am I going to walk off this? How am I going to, so yeah, it makes you stop in your tracks and go like, no, this is what genuine is. And it gives you that sense of purpose of helping another human being. So that's kind of a circle around way of answering that question. Hopefully it made a little sense, but. Yeah, I mean, it makes so much sense, doesn't it? I'm completely with you, you know, because I myself have recovered from bulimia and completely for me, finding my purpose and living was the way out of it. It wasn't about, you know, thinking about weight or, you know, managing the symptoms so much. It was about focusing on something much bigger and greater and really finding that purpose and meaning. So I'm so with you, actually. Yeah, really, really with you. And putting purpose to the pain is another big thing. I would love for listeners to each challenge themselves to, and yeah, whether you want to publish it or not, but to write a memoir, to write your story. That is great. I've been been in talks with Jenny Schaefer a lot, and I know everybody probably knows her. She's definitely the icon of the eating disorder recovery world. But she was so instrumental when I was going through my writing process and just saying like the thing that saved her was sharing her story. Because otherwise it's looking at like, why am I going through this? I think it's so easy to take kind of a victim mentality and go, yeah, why me? Versus when you start writing that out and you put purpose to that pain, you start to go like, I wonder why me? I wonder what this has to teach me. I wonder what I have to share with the world through this. So yeah, really, really big shift in mentality that comes through that putting purpose to a pain. Mm, Yeah, I so agree. 
So Ryan, could you tell us a bit more about your books? So obviously you had one published back in February, is that right? And then you've got another one coming out next month. So could you just share a bit more about both of those? Yeah, definitely. The one that's coming out in February, I started writing that well in the psych hospital because I thought it was just ironic that a psych chaplain had landed himself in a psych hospital. And at the time, I was searching for, I wanted to say me too when reading something or when and every book that i had was from some psychiatrist or psychologist that was 20 years removed from their disorder and that was great but it was so hard just the day to day to even think about recovery while i was just trying to think about how to make it through the emotions of the day that i decided to be really interesting to write a book first person from somebody that's going through the trials of the second and the moment and the so yeah I just started kind of journaling this and my counselor at the time had a PhD in English and she convinced me to kind of put it towards publication so yeah that book is out I've recorded the audiobook in my own voice and once again talk about your experiences of kind of self-transformation I challenge anybody to write a memoir and then record it. To have to listen to yourself those words during those most down and out times was absolutely transformational. So that book is called From Emaciated to Emancipated, The Story of a Skinny Mango. Mango is my nickname. Once again, it goes to my kooky food habits. But yeah, so that book's out and all the proceeds for that go towards eating disorder recovery. Got a couple different nonprofits that I'm working with, one of which is my own. I lead a therapeutic sailing program for disabled individuals with mental illness. So, yeah, definitely look that up. That's a fun one. So, yeah, from emaciated to emancipated. And then the novel that I have coming out, I actually have another one, a children's book that's a safari of mental illnesses. So, every mental illness is a different safari animal so i've got bill the bipolar bear and eli the elephant with alzheimer's and yeah just looking at how to teach mental illness to children is kind of a fun one so that's getting illustrated right now and the novel is actually my theological take on a lot of current events and issues so it's called homos hobos and the holy hereafter and it's a story of self-acceptance told through a deceased homeless individual, a deceased gay man, and a very non-traditional God in this afterlife account. So yeah, it's my religious take on society and self-acceptance, social acceptance, and spiritual acceptance. Mm. Told in kind of a comedic way. Mm. Sure, it sounds wonderful. And it sounds like you've been very busy and very creative, I think. <laughs> all, all the different sort of, yeah, the types of writing you've been doing it's very inspiring yeah it's I think creativity is something that completely and totally enhances the recovery experience and that's just it is we need to be creative about our recovery I think is a really important way to phrase that Mm -hmm. honestly that's one of the things I've learned from the autism diagnosis there's really not at this point despite the growing numbers of neurodiversity and diagnoses there's really not like a formulaic recovery route as there has been in traditional eating disorders where you have your three meal a day three snack a day we have to figure out recovery for ourselves a little bit and and figure out these patterns that work and playful with it 
that's a huge component. So mm. creativity is key and anything you can do to enhance that creativity is something you have to practice. It doesn't come natural. So to set aside a certain amount of time every day to just be creative and to be all right when you flop is really important. Mm. Yeah, I think it's so helpful to hear that. And I think a real permission slip to many people because I think often, you know, we do have so many of the answers within us, don't we? And when we sort of explore our creativity, explore what brings us purpose, when we really go within and, you know, perhaps, you know, access our spiritual side a bit more, you know, we can really walk a recovery road that's going to make sense to us and, you know, get us out of the trenches. And I guess, you know, that's just so different for everybody, isn't it? There's not like, I think even for more sort of traditional kind of presentations, there's not one way. I really believe that. And, you know, you are the expert on you, I always say to my clients. I think, you know, it's just really helpful. Exactly. Yeah. To access your voice. Yeah. Well, it's funny you said recovery roads. That's another area where I kind of like laid into the wording behind it, actually. I had a chapter about transforming recovery road so yeah we're not walking recovery road but we're plodding along recovery path and Mm. the difference is really important versus like a road is destination driven like we have something set in mind of this is what recovery is and i am traveling towards this thing versus when you're on a path you're appreciating the journey you're looking around when there's an unexpected element in a road, a detour, we get frustrated and we get mad and we get, but when you're on a path, an unexpected detour is often what leads us to those beautiful waterfalls or a wildflower patch or, so yeah, I really think it's important to be really deliberate in looking at what recovery is for us and making sure that this isn't destination driven, but this is the journey and the journey does not have to be painful. It's going to have rough spots for sure. But yeah, you're not speeding along a highway, you're happily prancing along a pathway. Mm, yeah, and I love that. Yeah, it just makes it feel much more doable as well, doesn't it? I think the pressure that people feel sometimes to get to that end goal and exactly as you're saying, almost like destination focus, speeding along the highway, that can just feel overwhelming, can't it? Yeah. And so many of us don't know what that end goal is. Like I still to this day can't tell you what recovery is for me. For an everyday, you talk to people, your recovery is much different than my recovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was something that I had to accept with the autism diagnosis too, is I always look at an eating disorder as a phase in life. And especially in my younger years. Yeah. When I went into the hospital my first time at 18, my eating disorder was just a simple phase. It was something, yeah, Lord knows, I was going to outgrow it in a year, not two decades later, be going back to inpatient. So when they diagnosed me with autism, it was, in a lot of ways, it was really soothing because it helped me with self-acceptance and versus, whereas I often blame myself for having an eating disorder, I no longer blamed myself for having autism. But what it also did, and which was a little bit harder to accept, was just the understanding that this wasn't something I was going to outgrow. You don't outgrow a neurological disorder. So, and you don't outgrow an eating disorder. It requires work. It's not something that's going to simply go away without you being proactive Mm -hmm. with it. So, yeah. yeah. Understanding what recovery is for you in that moment 
recovery for you in this moment might be very different than it was 10 years ago and that what it is 10 years from now. So, mm, yeah. So, Ryan, where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you, find out about your book? Like, where's the best place to get in contact with yeah, you? Yeah, most definitely. So I'm really a pretty easy person to find. You can always do, yeah, you can find me on Facebook and so forth. I'm Ryan Mango Althouse, and that's A-L-T-H-A-U-S. But the easiest way is my website. It's just thesurfingmango.com. And that's got links to all those different books and ways to contact. I've got a program I call Paddle and Play Therapy. So if you're local to Santa Cruz or you want to come visit, I do all sorts of just one-on-one. I call them conversation. I don't even call it coaching. But yeah, do it via art classes or paddling out in the kind of paddling out in Monterey Bay. We have a lot of whales out here. I've got a couple of tandem kayaks and things like that just looking at healthy mindful activity and yeah I would love to dialogue with people that's so helpful in my own journey because I'm still early stages in this this post-relapse journey so anytime I can talk to another person my contact information is all on that the surfing go website so would love to continue the conversation yeah, no, wonderful. Well, I shall make sure, you know, that we put your website in the show notes. So I'm sure that there will be many people listening that might want to get in touch or just like read up more about what you're doing. And, you know, it sounds like you're doing some like really fascinating, inspiring and, you know, very creative work. So yeah, very inspiring. Yeah. And having all sorts of bloopers along the way. So uh, you'll, <laughs> yeah, you'll read a lot about them. We can share a lot about them. And yeah, it's been a journey. And it'll continue to be that way. Mm-hmm. So hopefully have some, some new people joining me on that journey after this podcast. Sure. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Ryan, for coming on the podcast today. You know, I really appreciate you, you know, sharing so openly. And I think just so much value in, you know, the things that you've been talking about. And yeah, so just thank you so much. And um, I just wish you all the best, you know, in your ongoing journey and all the work you're doing. Oh my gosh, no, thank you. This has been so fun. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did. Do go and check out all of Ryan's details in the show notes. If you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at the eating disorder therapist underscore. And for further support with your relationship with food, do go to the theeatingdisordertherapist.co.uk. If you enjoy this podcast, I'd be so grateful if you'd follow, rate and review as it helps it reach so many more listeners. Thank you so much for listening today and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon. Mm